reason why John 17 is the scripture reading right before a sermon on John Knox is precisely because that is the very text that God used to awaken this man's soul. He got saved reading that text. It's also the very text that he asked his wife to read to him while he was on his deathbed just hours before he met Christ. It was this very text, John 17, this gripping, dramatic prayer of Christ to the Father that had so captivated Knox that it literally set the trajectory for the entirety of his life. It shaped his ministry. It empowered his prayers. It gave him unrelenting courage in the face of danger. It sustained him for his suffering. And oh, how this man suffered for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a man who knew what it was to be hated, to have a price on his head and a target on his chest. The reason he did is because he was a pastor preaching the word of God in the most brutal persecution in the history of Scotland, namely in the mid-1500s when Mary I ruled, or should I say, tyrannized the entire country. You might know her by her nickname, Bloody Mary. She was called that not because she liked the alcoholic drink, but because in the five years in which she ruled the country, she burnt and murdered and executed almost 300 Protestants with absolute barbarity, absolute cruelty. At the top of the list, her most wanted criminals was John Knox himself. Martin Luther, who launched the Reformation in 1517, said that if we fight our battle where it doesn't rage the hottest, we are, for that very reason, unfaithful. Now, if that's true, then that means there were, no, there were few people more faithful than John Knox, who plunged himself into the heart of the hottest battle in the world at the time, which was to bring the light of the Reformation to a country swallowed in darkness. Why that matters, why we're talking about the Reformation this morning is because today is October 31st, which means this is the 504th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And by Reformation, I mean that moment in history when the lamp of the gospel of sovereign grace was relit after centuries of darkness. You understand this is one of those proverbial rocks in the pond of history? The ripple effects of which we are still feeling even to this day, 500 years later. And yet what we have to remember is that Martin Luther was only the beginning. It was only the beginning because there was, of course, John Calvin of Geneva. There was William Tyndale of England. There was Theodore Beza of France. There was Zwingli in Switzerland, Heinrich Bollinger in Germany. There was Thomas Cranmer and Hugh Latimer of England, both burned alive by Bloody Mary. But you see, if we are going to be faithful Reformation historians, we also must add to the list John Knox of Scotland, who in his tumultuous life was so many different things. He was a priest, then a bodyguard, then a pastor, a slave, a prisoner, a military chaplain, a missionary, a Bible translator, a husband, a father, a preacher, and theologian. And finally, he was the man who led the greatest reformation and awakening in the history of Scotland. He was beaten. He was shot at. He was whipped. He was imprisoned. He was jailed. He was held as a slave. He preached to armies. He preached to parliament, to bratty churches and dragon queens who could have easily lopped off his head with a spoken word. And yet never once did he cave. Never once did he back down. Never once did he ever cower out of fear or flee town because of danger. No, John Knox, you see, he preached the word of God and simply let the chips fall where they may. Now, he wasn't always a gracious or gentle man, mind you, but I think you'll agree that sometimes you need more than a flute or a soft violin to waken people from sleep. You see, sometimes you need the timpani and the cymbals and the drums crashing at the, at the crescendo to awaken people from sleep. And John Knox, you understand, he was the cymbals, the drums of Jesus Christ crashing at the crescendos to awaken a people who had been trapped in spiritual darkness. That was John Knox. And you have to understand the reason why we're doing this, the reason why 
we're talking about the Reformation and Luther and Calvin and Knox is precisely because the Reformation, it ain't over. Not by a long shot. It is not even close. It is still, it is now in our hands as a generation of new reformers to keep the lamp of the gospel of grace always burning in the darkness. So what we're doing here this morning is not just history, historical dates and facts that you can take or leave. Rather, what this is, is a recruitment mission for the king for you to join a long line of men and women who gave everything so that the gospel could reach every tribe and tongue and nation and people. That is what this is. Because they say, don't they? They say that you are, you forget, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. But I say that if we forget the history of the Reformation, we'll be doomed precisely because we don't repeat it. And so to fuel the Reformation fire this morning, we look at the life, the ministry, the courage of the light of Scotland, John Knox. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from the life of Knox three soul-sustaining values. Three soul-sustaining values that we must embody as a generation of new reformers. That's where we're going. Three soul-sustaining values that we must embody as a generation of new reformers. But before we look at the life of Knox, however, we, which is absolutely riveting, we need to do a couple preliminary things to set the stage for Knox. See, first, we need to remember what the Reformation is. What the Reformation is, because what it is not is a single moment led only by one man. No, you understand what the Reformation is, is a revolution. A Christ-exalting, God-centered, Bible-saturated revolution to bring the entirety of Christianity back under the supreme authority of the Word of God. Because again, you remember that for a thousand years, spiritual darkness personified the Catholic Church. The Bible was a closed book. Spiritual ignorance ruled the minds of the people. The gospel was perverted. Church tradition trumped divine truth. Personal holiness had been abandoned. The rotten stench of man-made traditions covered pope and priest alike. But you see, everything changed on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther hammered onto the Wittenberg church doors, a document that exposed some of the most tragic corruptions of the Roman Catholic Church. And you see, in that moment, everything changed. Why? Because what the Catholic Church had essentially done was blocked the way into the Holy of Holies. And Martin Luther, you understand, was the steel-toed boot of Jesus Christ to kick it in again. In other words, what this was was the rediscovery of the gospel itself. So you have to understand is that the Reformation is no mere disagreement between two groups of men who have equal but different points of views. No, what this is, is with the Bible before them, the Reformers knew that there was a great enemy out there whose aim was to silence the voice of the gospel. Which is explained why John Knox's favorite word in his vocabulary was battle. Because he and the Reformers understood that the fight for truth was a fight to the death. Which brings us now to part one. Part one, which I call the Black Abyss of Scotland. The Black Abyss of Scotland, the homeland, the upbringing, and the conversion of Knox. Because you see, the best way to prepare for the light of Scotland as he came to be known is to see the Black Abyss out of which he emerged. You see, Scotland in that day, there was no such thing as, well, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. No, you see, in Scotland in that day, it was only the worst of times. Understand, Scotland was not a sweet place to raise a family, nor was it a, place to, a good place to find a Bible-teaching church because there weren't any. Scotland was behind the times. They were plagued by poverty. They were ravaged by war. Few men in Scotland had not fought in battle. Life was cheap, and times were brutal. Sudden death by various violent means was not uncommon in that day. And not only was it pretty much a third world country economically, it was also relatively untouched by the gospel. See, the waves of the Reformation were very slow to make it to the shores of Scotland, and part of that had to do with the Scottish Catholic authorities in the church, in the country at the time, who opposed the Reformation with violent opposition. One biographer said this, he said, the corruptions 
by which the Christian religion was sadly disfigured before the Reformation had grown, get this, to a greater height in Scotland than in any other nation in the Western church. Superstition and religious imposture in their grossest forms, he says, gained easy admission in the, among the rude and ignorant people of Scotland. Which means what this was, what this place was, was a spiritual graveyard. Worse than most places, biographers say. You see, the gospel was unknown in Scotland. The Bible was a lost book. Superstition ruled the land. Bishops and priests were openly immoral and ignorant. Monasteries were little more than brothels and frat houses of debauchery. One church historian said the kingdom of Scotland, get this, swarmed with ignorant, idle, luxurious monks who, like locusts, devoured the fruits of the earth and filled the air with pestilence and infection. Which meant Scotland was a synagogue of Satan. And he was not going to yield his territory easily, his hard-won territory easily. He had the seniority in Scotland. The evil one did not want Bibles or Bible-preaching preachers anywhere near the borders of Scotland. The Bible was absolutely forbidden. If anyone did dare to preach the Word of God or speak out against the abuses of the Catholic Church, they were labeled as a heretic, canceled as a heretic, and if they did not leave the country to the dungeon or to the fire, they would go. Which means, which means someone, someone was going to have to reach their hand down into the blender of the Catholic Church and just be willing to be chewed up and bloodied. And John Knox was the man willing to do that. Born in 1514, that's three years before the hammer blows of Luther. Born in a small town of Haddington in East Lothian, not mid-Lothian, Lothian. Uh, about 15 miles outside of, of Edinburgh. Which basically means he was born in the middle of nowhere. His family was Catholic, not wealthy, not prestigious, but they did highly value education, and they gave him the best education they could. They sent him to the best schools they could until 1529. At 15 years old, he went to St. Andrews University, one of the oldest, most uh, preeminent universities in all of Britain. And Knox was, it seemed, unusually gifted intellectually. If he wasn't the smartest guy in the room, he, w he was the hardest working guy in the room. And as his life unfolds, the profound power of his mind will be obvious. Graduated in 1536 at 22 years old, and immediately he was ordained into the priesthood. He was a Catholic priest. You understand that, that Knox was a fish in Catholic water. He was a totally bought-in, persuaded member and now priest of the Roman Catholic Church. He was, he said, drowning in the puddle of papistry. And entrenched, he said, in the very same doctrine that for centuries robbed the Scottish people of the saving knowledge of the living God. Unfortunately, or maybe we should say fortunately, he couldn't find a parish to do his priest thing in. And so what he did is he made ends meet by working as a notary for the Catholic Church, just verifying legal documents, boring but he also made ends meet by being a tutor for a family from 1540 to 1543. He was a, a teacher and a tutor, private tutor for this family. Again, he's just trying to make ends meet here, just trying to make it until he becomes a priest. And yet it's precisely at this moment in his life when we see the sovereign providence of God working in his life. You see, uh, uh, here was uh, when, when he was this tutor with his family, this was likely his first ever exposure to the gospel because this was a known Protestant family. So here he is, however much exposure that was, he is around people who believe in the Reformation, believe in the gospel. The second providence of God was this sudden, unexplainable change in the government in 1542, where for no reason whatsoever, the government all of a sudden uh, granted greater freedom to the Protestant cause, freedom to preach, freedom to evangelize, freedom to, to worship, and there just happened to be in East Lothian, where Knox lived, a bold, fire-eyed preacher of the word of God named George Wishart. No, excuse me, his name was Thomas Guillaume. Thomas Guillaume, and this man seized on the opportunity to preach. So, so here he is, he's 28 years old. For the very first time in his life, Knox is hearing the gospel, hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the infinitely good news that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet Knox was not converted. 
It'd be another two to three years before this man emerged as a champion of the Reformation. And yet in those two to three years, this dude buried himself in the study of the scriptures, which he had never done before in his entire life. Think about it. He studied to be a priest, had never read the Bible exhaustively. And yet he took these two to three years to study the word of God like a man possessed he buried himself in the scriptures, and, and as he did so, his faith in what he had been taught his entire life long in the Catholic Church began to unravel. He began to see that so much of what he had been taught his whole life long was not only not in the Bible, it was against the Bible. And so somewhere between 1546-1547, Knox enters the arena of the Reformation like a lion freed from its cage, not only saved by sovereign grace, but his bones on fire to preach and teach the word of God. In other words, world meet John Knox, the most champion of the Reformation cause. Which brings us to part two. Part two, which I call glory on a slave ship, the trials of John Knox. The trials of John Knox. Because to say that Knox's life was not boring is a tragic understatement. To be honest, I don't know how he lived as long as he did. He died at 67, and that's honestly a miracle. Um, until his death in 1572, there were very few seasons of his life when he was not in danger, embroiled in controversy, handling a crisis, being arrested, being shot at, being imprisoned, being interrogated by the police, being interrogated by the Queen of Scotland herself. I mean, the pace of this man's life was like the Indy 500. It was just go, 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 go until his death. And it all began after his conversion to Christ when he resigned as a priest. And the first thing he did in the cause, to advance the cause of the Reformation, get this, is that he decided to be a bodyguard a bodyguard for this Reformation preacher named George Wishart. So George Wishart was this Reformation preacher setting fire to Scotland through the, the preaching of God's word, and Knox was deeply impacted by this man's ministry, this heart-searching proclamation of the word of God. And you see, as the crowds began to grow, so also did the danger. In the middle of a sermon one time, George Wishart is preaching, and some maniac tried to murder him, kill him in the middle of his sermon. And so Knox decided that, well, I think the best thing for me to do is to become a bodyguard, mercenary-type guy to protect George Wishart as he preached. So this is the kind of guy Knox is. Right, brilliant intellectually, but he is not some mushball, flabby scholar. This, this guy is a beast. This guy is a warrior. So he would stand near Wishart as he preached with his double-edged, long-bladed battle sword, ready to take a hack at anyone who would dare even approach Wishart. I mean, this guy was a beast, and yet, sad moment, sad moment. All of a sudden, George Wishart relieved him of his bodyguard duties. Wishart seemed to sense that Knox needed his own preaching ministry, that he needed to lay down the literal sword, take up the sword of the word of God, and preach himself. And get this, the very night in which he relieved Wishart of his duties, Catholic authorities hired assassins and mercenaries to break into his house and kill Wishart in cold blood. The very day. A few days later, March 1st, 1546, Cardinal David Beautan, Burnt, uh, burnt George Wishart's body in the courtyard of the church as a warning to anyone who would dare oppose the Holy Mother of Rome. This is bold. This is, this is shocking. It's a horrifying thing. And what that did do was embolden the Catholic Church to oppose, to go on a rampage against the cause of the Reformation, like Saul in the book of Acts, which is exactly what they did. And two Catholic leaders especially, Cardinal Beauton and a guy named John Hamilton, wicked, godless men, they sought to kill Knox with such unrelenting hatred that Knox saw that his only option was to leave the country. Not out of fear, not out of fear, mind you, but because his mere existence in the country put other people's lives in danger. And yet, it's hard to understand how all this worked because... Many of the believers in the area, for whatever reason, had flocked to the University of St. Andrews as sort of like headquarters, home base, haven for the Reformation cause. I don't know why the university would allow it, but they did. Hundreds, if not thousands of people were flocking there every day, and they used it as church, seminary, Bible school, community, and Knox was in the middle of all of it, preaching sermons in chapel, teaching classes, ministering, giving lectures on Bible and theology, and very soon these leaders in this 
kind of growing, exploding movement realized that what they had on their hands was a church, and what they needed was a pastor to preach and shepherd this church, and Knox was the obvious man for the job. So these men, they urged Knox not to stay, not, or not to leave the country, but to stay and be the pastor of this church, and Knox's response was, absolutely not. No way. No way. I, he, he simply refused to do this because, because preaching sermons in chapel and giving lectures in seminary classes was one thing, but shepherding at a church and a persecuted church at that was something else entirely. And sort of, what, what sort of ensued was this cat and mouse, they insist, he resist, back and forth until one day, to get, get a load of this, they staged a meeting in the chapel. It, really what it was was an was a intervention. So everyone shows up. They invite him last of all. He walks into the room, and they universally demand, demand that he be the pastor of this church, that he start a Reformation church plant in Scotland and, and, and minister the gospel. And exasperated, he stood up, and he, he stood up and he turned, and he faced this huge crowd, and he essentially bellowed, is this what you want? Is this really what you want? Which was a dumb question because it's exactly what they wanted. They all universally agreed, yes, that's exactly what we want. And being overwhelmed at the thought of this crushing call, he literally burst into tears and ran out of the room and disappeared and hid by himself alone in his room for days. For days. Why? Because the pulpit is not a plaything. That's why. Ministry is not a job. Preaching is so much more than an occupation. It is the proclamation of the word of the living God. And you understand, it was, as one writer put it, the care of immortal souls, declaring the whole counsel of God, keeping nothing back, no matter how unpleasant it might be to his hearers. It was the possible afflictions and persecutions, imprisonment, exile, and even violent death to which he and his people may be exposed that rushed into his mind and filled him with such anxiety and dread. And I really appreciate the, the weight and the gravity that Knox felt over the ministry because he understood that, that the call to shepherd God's people is a call to handle the most sacred treasures in the world, namely the word of God and the people of God. You know, in the Old Testament, prophets received these things called oracles. Oracles, and that word in Hebrew, massah, literally has the idea of a weight, of a burden. You see, what this was, was a joyful burden. This was a beautiful agony. This was a pleasing pain to preach to God's people, and eventually, eventually Knox, over time, submitted to the call. And he realized that if he was going to do this pastor, preacher, expositor, shepherd thing for this church, the only way this was going to work is if he despaired in his worthless resources to do the ministry and cast himself upon Christ for his endless ones, which is exactly what he did. And he engaged in his task with the ferocity of a tiger. His preaching of the sovereign grace in salvation was the axe at the root of Rome's rotted gospel of works and merit. And for the next several months, next several months, the word of God thundered throughout the University of St. Andrew's Chapel through the voice of Knox. And the way the biographers make it sound like is that hundreds, thousands of people were hearing the gospel for the very first time and they were getting saved. This is incredible. This is great. This is fantastic. This is thrilling. This is exciting. Until that is, in June 1547, a French fleet of ships invaded Scotland, stormed St. Andrew's Castle, broke up the party, and took dozens of people as slaves, including Knox. So things too complex and boring to mention here, there, there were complicated political ties between French, France and Scotland at the time. And you see, it was the Scottish government which hated the Protestant cause, called in this French army as backup to put an end to this Reformation nonsense and take back St. Andrews for the Catholic Church, which they successfully did. And Knox and dozens and dozens and dozens of other men were taken captive, thrown into the pit of this ship. And for the next 19 months, they were in the bottom of this ship in chains as slaves, rowing this French war vessel. For a year and a half, with no breaks, Knox and these other men experienced fever, 
disease, sickness, malnutrition, not to mention the systematic abuse and even torture by the crew. The captain would go through the bottom floor with this little statue of Mary and try to make the men worship the statue and then have them flogged when they wouldn't do it. Knox describes the season of crippling discouragement and, and depression and even despair that would overtake him on the ship, which makes sense, completely pitch dark in the bottom of this hull of this ship. And yet despite, despite the 19 straight months of torture and misery, Knox continued to preach, to hold services, to proclaim the gospel to the godless crew, and somehow even managed to, to scrounge up a quill and paper and in whatever spare time he had, write out theology and a confession of faith. You see, what the slave ship was, this was punishment for preaching the word of God. If they had changed their mind on killing him, they decided instead to break him by burying him alive in a sopping wet hole of a slave ship. See, if reformers like cats have nine lives, eight of those lives for Knox were lost in the bottom of that ship, which he never recovered from, by the way, ever. Not, not fully. Years later, he still suffered from violent headaches, crippling stomach issues that when they would come, virtually would leave him paralyzed. He wrote to a friend in 1553, that's six years after the ship. He said, the pain of my head and stomach troubles me greatly today. But the infinite goodness of God, who never despiseth the petitions of a sore troubled heart, shall at his good pleasure put an end to these pains that we presently suffer, and in their place shall crown us with glory in immortality forever. See what he did there? The pain was intense and crippling, and he didn't leave it there. He looked forward to when God would redeem all things. You understand what this was. This was the seminary of suffering for Knox. You see, what was perhaps hard to see in the pitch black ship, rusty chains, water up to your ankles as you rowed a boat with a fever, it was hard to see that Christ was preparing this man for the most important task and duty of the Christian life, which was not preaching, but desperation. It was desperation. Radical dependence and white-knuckled reliance on the promises of God found in his word. That is what Christ was doing in the life of Knox. And that is precisely what God is doing in your life and in my life, in all of our trials, in all of our pain, in all of our suffering, in all of our inconveniences. You see, Knox's life is a reminder to us that God does give us more than we can handle. He does do that on purpose. And the reason he does is because he wants us to master the virtue of desperation and dependence upon God's power even to raise the dead. Paul said this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1. He said, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. And this happened, he said, listen very carefully, and this happened so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. See, that is what God was doing in the life of Knox. That is what God is doing in our lives. Who knew that the resurrection was so practical? But then all of a sudden, with no reasonable explanation, the slaves were released. Some deal was worked out between France and, and England and, and February 1549 after 19 months in literal chains at the bottom of this French war vessel, Knox was dropped off at the port of London. It was too risky, too dangerous to go back up to Scotland. There's still, still a wanted man with a price on his head. And so instead of that, he did the next best thing, which was take a church in this small, dirty town 10 miles south of the Scottish border uh, where um, it was considered the hardest, most God-forsaken village in all of England, filled with taverns and drunks and rowdy soldiers and Christ was pleased to bless his labors and snatch many of those wild souls from the flames. 
And here's the thing, Knox's reputation as a skilled and fearless expositor of the word of God eventually landed him this crazy gig, get this, as chaplain to the king of England himself. The king of England heard about John Knox, loved his preaching, decided to make him his own personal chaplain, which basically meant that he got to travel around all of England and preach the word of God all over. So here he is traveling all around England, spreading the sound doctrine, advancing the cause of the Reformation. Hundreds, thousands of people were hearing the gospel and getting saved, including his future wife, by the way. Come back to that. And so here's, in one minute, here, here he is preaching in obscurity, the most lonely village in all of England, and the next minute, he is the most well-known preacher in the entirety of the country, preaching to thousands of people. Again, this is thrilling. This, this is exciting. This is incredible what God is doing. And yet, the strange and puzzling providence of God, King Edward drops dead in 1553, and who should take the throne but his sister, Mary Tudor? a radicalist Catholic, vicious hater of the Reformation, known best by her nickname, Bloody Mary, and trust me when I say that she lived up to the name, a witch of unrelenting cruelty. She immediately went to work 12 days after her brother was dead. The corpse is still warm. She unleashed the worst persecution in the history of England, drenching it with the blood of martyrs. In five years, she slaughtered nearly 300 of our comrades, including some of the greatest pastors and preachers in the history of England. Just, just wiped them out, tried to wipe this thing off the face of the planet. And John Knox was determined. He was determined to stay and die in the flames for preaching the word of God, if called to do so. And yet, his church and leaders in the uh, Reformation community told him that he had to go. They, they, they almost by force made him leave. And there was this argument, and he fought, and he struggled, and he battled with them. And I think their rationale was, look, look, someone's got to survive. At least one person's got to make it out alive so that you can come back here when things change, when conditions should change. And so he fought, argued, and yet with great agony and anguish of soul, he relented and reluctantly obeyed their wishes. Snuck down to the port, boarded a ship set for Europe, and on January 20th, 1554, landed on the coast of France. Which brings us to part three. Part three, which I call Discipled by a Giant. Discipled by a giant, Knox's training in Calvin's Geneva. Knox's training in Calvin's Geneva. Now, because I have minutes and not hours, I, I, I can only say a little bit about the thing that perhaps might interest me more than anything, namely the relationship between Calvin and Knox after Knox left the bloodbath of Britain. Because, you see, if suffering was one kind of seminary training, working with John Knox was another kind of seminary training. Who, and I think Calvin being the greatest expositor and theologian in the history of Europe. Because Knox agonized in his soul whether it was right to leave Britain. I mean, is this a right call to make when many of my fellow preachers who didn't leave are being burned alive? When the flock that he shepherded now had to be scattered and go underground like churches in China or North Korea. This happened. He wrote to his mother. He said, some will ask, why then did I flee? Assuredly, I cannot tell. But of one thing, I am sure the fear of death was not the cause of my fleeing. And yet my hope is to obtain such mercy. Listen to how he defines God's mercy. To obtain such mercy that unless I die first, I shall be ready to suffer more than poverty or exile for the profession of that doctrine and heavenly religion whereof it has pleased the Almighty to make me a soldier and witness of men. How did he define God's mercy? To go back to Scotland and die for the doctrine, in particular, the doctrine of sovereign grace that saved him from eternal woe and despair. And yet what Knox may have first interpreted as surrender and cowardice, which is exactly how he did define it, he never got over this. This was, in God's divine providence, one of the greatest ministry preparations for the entirety of his life. What was about to happen to Knox, you understand, was the kindling, it was the kerosene that would be, later be used by Christ to kindle Scotland flames of the Reformation. In spring of 1554, Knox arrives in Geneva, Switzerland, where Calvin was, and immediately he was received by Calvin as a lifelong friend. Calvin is 45. Knox is 40, and here is 
one giant of the faith meeting and embracing another giant of the faith. And, and Knox, Geneva was what Knox called the perfect school of Christ. That's what he called it. And what he meant was, was that Christ was doing something so unique and profound in Geneva because it was nothing less than this launch site for global ministry. It literally was this epicenter of great commission activity as people from all over Europe flocked to Geneva, got trained, and then they were sent out to proclaim the word of God. Calvin established a rigorous theological training school there that trained men to go out and preach the word of God, and many of whom became martyrs, so many martyrs, by the way, that the school eventually became known as the school of death. And he trained them to do exactly what Paul told Timothy to do, which is to train men to handle the word of God with laser-like precision. And the reason why he did is because the Great Commission depends upon that. And so while Knox was there in, in Geneva, two notable things happened, two notable things. Number one, Knox learned and mastered Hebrew at 40. At 40. It's never too late, friends. It's never too late to learn and master Hebrew. And the question is, why did he do this? Because he understood that the sacred office of pastor and theologian and expositor required superior theological and exegetical training. This is not a joke. You must land, land, learn to handle the word of God, which is exactly what he did. Number two, the second notable thing that happened is that during his stay in Geneva, he helped translate and write the study notes for the Geneva Bible, which became the premier English translation used by the English-speaking church for the next hundred years that preceding the King James by half a century. And so, so these, were, these were fruitful and heady and exciting days here in Geneva, laboring in the trenches, being discipled by Calvin, but two other events here that are important to tell. One, Knox was a man in love. One of the converts under his preaching was a woman named Marjorie Bowes, with whom he stayed in contact as pen pals. It's cute. When we couldn't wait any longer, he risked his life, went back into England, snatched this lady up, married her, and brought her and her mother-in-law back into Geneva. That's what kind of guy he is, right? Brings the, brings the wife and the mother-in-law. Swell guy. Second thing that happened here was an English-speaking congregation in Germany. So you have to understand that people had fled from uh, Britain, were all over Europe, and there was this English-speaking congregation in Germany asked him to come and be their pastor, which he did. And through no fault of his own, it was an absolute disaster. They were divisive and immature, and they were fighting the 16th century version of the worship wars, if you remember that. And so he left that train wreck, and after a year, went back to Geneva, and then... Again, his life was just so fast-paced. I mean, Indy 500, went back to Geneva for a year and then went to Scotland for a year traveling as a traveling evangelist, preaching the word of God. Then an English-speaking congregation back in Geneva asked him to come back and be their pastor. So from 1556-1559, that's exactly what he did. And this was easily the most quiet season of his life. He fathered two children. His marriage was happy. Geneva is a beautiful place to live. The church is thriving. He's sharing the city, working alongside the greatest theologian in Europe's history, John Calvin, for literally the first time in his life. It was green pastures and quiet waters. And yet, and yet, the screams of his comrades in Scotland, he could not silence. One biographer notes, Neither the enjoyment of personal accommodations, nor the pleasures of a literary life, nor the endearments of domestic happiness could subdue Knox's ruling passion or unfix his determination to revisit Scotland as soon as an opportunity should offer for advancing the cause of the Reformation among his countrymen. Bloody Mary died in 1558, and shortly after that, Knox received a letter in the mail from leaders in the church in Scotland inviting him to come back and pastor and preach the word of God. And two months later, in January 1559, he and Marjorie said goodbye to Geneva for the very last time, never to see them or Calvin in this life. And the Knox family landed on the coast of Scotland May 2nd, 1559, at a country ready to be kindled by the flames of the Reformation. Which brings us to part four. Part four, the fire set to Scotland. The ministry, the death, and the legacy of Knox, years 1559, 1572. My question is, how do you summarize 
13 years of fruitful, powerful, effective ministry in five minutes? I don't know. But what I will say, what I will say is that although the work was grueling and painful in Scotland, it was also glorious and profound. The, the, the church there in Scotland was a mess. It was an absolute mess. There, there, there was no church there. It was an absolute shambles. And although, although the wicked witch of England was dead, there was, unfortunately, Mary of Guise. So if you know anything about French aristocracy, Mary of Guise, a French teenage queen ruling Scotland, a militant Catholic who hated Knox and the Reformation. She encouraged, provoked, sanctioned hitmen and assassins to murder Knox. And yet Knox remained unmoved. He said, my life is in the custody of him whose glory I seek. Therefore, I cannot so fear their boast nor tyranny that I will cease from doing my duty when of his mercy he offereth me the occasion. I desire the hand or weapon of no man to defend me. These are dangerous days. In fact, in fact, I wish I could tell the whole story about, uh, about Marjorie. This time was so brutal and such, the pressure was so high that it literally killed her broke her. She died shortly after this because the pressure was so intense. People favorable to Catholicism were trying to figure out how to embroil the country in civil war. A new army, a French army, was preparing to invade Scotland to reestablish French Catholic rule. His life is constantly uh, on the hunt from assassins and murderers. People would come by his house and shoot rifles through muskets through the window. It's just, just chaos and danger. And yet, and yet, despite the chaos and danger, King Jesus was on the move. With light speed, you understand the fires of the Reformation spread throughout the entirety of the country through the preaching of the Word of God. One writer says, the attention of the, of the nation was aroused. Their eyes were opened to the errors by which they had been deluded, and they panted for a continued and more copious supply of the Word of Life, which they had once been permitted to taste and had felt so refreshing to their souls. Knox compared to what was happening here to the walls of Jericho crumbling to the ground and Israel storming the city. He said, thus far God has advanced the glory of his dear son among us. The long thirst of my wretched heart is satisfied in abundance far above my expectation for God has been well pleased to use my tongue in my native country to the manifestation of his glory. Very soon after he was appointed the pastor of St. Giles Church, he got the greatest gigs. This, this was incredible. This was the most influential church in all of Scotland. And so what he did for the next decade of his life, Knox would deliver these, these pillar-shaking expository sermons every single Sunday. And to our great impoverishment, only one, only one of those sermons, manuscript sermons, has survived until this day. Here's a quote, here's a quote from it. This is a challenge to his fellow Scots to declare their highest allegiance to God alone. He said, would you, O Scotland, have a king reign over you with justice, equity, and mercy? Is that what you want, Scotland? Subject yourselves then to the Lord your God and keep his commandments and magnify the word that calls to you. This is the way. Walk in it. And if you will not do that, he says, flatter not yourselves. The same justice remains this day in God to punish you, Scotland, and Edinburgh especially, which before punished the land of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. Every realm or nation, says the prophet Jeremiah, that likewise offendeth God shall likewise also be punished. And there's just no fooling around with this guy. There's, there's no gamesmanship here with Knox. There's no playing church because, because preaching the word of God is not some pep talk to boost people's self-esteem. What it is is hearing the voice of the living God through the sacred text of Holy Scripture. For the next 10 years, the sequential exposition of the word of God is exactly what Knox gave his life to. To summarize the years here, sermons were preached, pastors were trained, he established theological training schools just like Calvin did, the elect got saved, wicked rulers were confronted, 
heretics and heresies were rebuked and condemned. Schools were built. He established a school in Scotland which taught women how to read and gave girls an education. This was unheard of. No one was doing that in his day. He did. You see, what Luther was to Germany and Calvin was to Geneva, Knox was to the entire country of Scotland. And yet, yet it seems for Knox that the old adage was true, that the light that burns twice as bright as the light that burns half as long. The old damage done by the slave ship came back to haunt him. Had a stroke in 1570, and his health began to rapidly decline, so much so that he said, I earnestly desire that I may end my battle, for as the world is weary of me, so I also am of it. Two years later, 1572, although only 67 years old, he looked like he was 107. Feeble, weak, could, could, could barely be audible, had to be carried to his pulpit, they say. And on November 24th at 5 p.m., he laid down on his bed and he told his wife that the time had come to depart from this life. The final hours before he went and met Christ, he asked his wife to read where he had first cast his anchor, which meant read John 17, which she did. And at 11 p.m. that night, he suddenly lifted a hand and after sighing twice without a struggle, passed silently into the presence of his risen redeemer. That is the life of John Knox. Which brings me, as promised, to three values. Three soul-sustaining values that we must embody as a new generation of reformers. This will go fast. Value number one. Value number one that we must embody like John Knox embodied is preaching. Preaching. We must preach like Knox preached we must believe in the power of the word proclaimed the way Knox believed in the power of the word proclaimed because the only true reformation, one historian said, is that which emanates from the word of God. And that's precisely what went down with Knox in Scotland. You see, if we want to see the reformation fires consume our city and we want to see that, then we must give ourselves like new reformers to the reading, to the studying, to the contemplating, to the enjoying, and to the teaching of the word of God to our children, to one another, and to the lost. We must preach. Value number two. Value number two, prayer. We must pray. We must pray. You see, we must pray and believe in prayer the way Knox prayed and believed in prayer because the way he prayed was fervently and urgently depending on God's sovereignty. One of Knox's favorite models in life was one man with God is always in the majority. You see, Knox was just never worried about French armies or assassins or murderers or mercenaries or killers even, or even getting his head chopped off by Bloody Mary. In fact, I think, in fact, I know that he was more worried for them because he had God on his side. Even his arch enemy, Mary, Queen of Scotland, said that she feared the prayers of John Knox more than an army of 10,000 men. When John Knox went up into his room to plead with God for Scotland, Charles Spurgeon called that the most significant event in the history of Scotland. Because prayer, you understand, is, was the engine that drove the engine of the Reformation. It was the engine that advanced the Reformation cause in Scotland, and it is the engine that will continue the Reformation cause here in the Metroplex. We must pray. Value number three, and then we're done. Unbeknownst to many, Knox was an unapologetic preacher of the doctrine of predestination. That's the third value, predestination. You see, Knox doesn't leave us anything like the literary output of Calvin, who gave us 47 volumes of magisterial theology and, and sermons and commentaries. Knox doesn't leave us anything like that. He leaves us six volumes, and yet a fifth of the content of those six volumes is given to a carefully reasoned biblical explanation of the doctrine of predestination. It's interesting. And the reason for that is because it is the fountain of our faith. It is the fuel of our worship. It is the foundation of our humility. 
And it is the fuel we need to finish the mission and reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the doctrines of sovereign grace, you understand, those doctrines are that which give us lion-hearted courage and broken-hearted compassion to persevere in the battle all the way to the end and give our lives, if need be, for the Reformation cause because it is not over. Speaking of that battle, I close with the words of Knox himself. He said, stand with Christ Jesus in this day of his battle, his battle, which, note, will be short and the victory will be everlasting. For the Lord shall come in our defense with his mighty power. He shall give us the victory when the battle is most strong. And today, today is that very day. And so from Knox to you, I say, happy Reformation Day. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are grateful for heroes, flawed heroes, heroes that needed a Savior just like we needed a Savior, flaws that had to depend on your grace and power to obey heroes that were made of du dust just as we are dust. And yet what dust John Knox was. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his ministry. Thank you for his courage. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to live without regard to our own lives. That like Knox, oh Lord, that we would not be afraid of death by any means. That we would have the courage to know that in the great day, you will rise us, raise us again in your likeness, O risen Redeemer. And there is nothing to fear. There is nothing to lose. I pray that you would, you would cause our hearts to boil with your word, O Lord. Boil within us, O Lord, so that we would not be able but to preach, but to proclaim, but to declare. O Lord, I pray that we would be a people richly indwelt by the word of Christ and that we would see that there is a mission, an unfailing mission, O Lord, that you have given to us. And it cannot fail. We look forward to how you will use us and this church to advance your global cause in the world, always for the glory of your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.